Hello, friends. Hello, 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 friends. A tradition unlike any other. Oh, 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 my goodness. In your life have you seen anything like that? There it is. Adam Scott, a life changer. Mashed potato. Here it, here it, here it, here it comes. Just before we get started, a word from our friends at Future Golf, the official golf club partner of the 19th Tee Podcast. Future Golf is Australia's largest golfing community for younger players, providing access to some of Australia's very best courses. Your membership includes free rounds, over 90 discounted green fees Australia-wide, a free professional lesson, an ex-golf simulator session, and of course, the all-important Golf Australia handicap. The best part, though? definitely the price with packages starting at just $24.95 per month it is the very best value golf membership you'll find plus listeners of this little podcast get a further 10% off with any future golf membership with the promo code the 19th t that's t-h-e-1-9-t-h-t-double-e and what i will say druids is the folks at future golf have been fantastic in the current crisis all current members will have their their full 12 month membership uh, granted, once golf recommences in each of your states, if you're signing up to a new membership at the moment, same deal. If you can't play, say if you're in Victoria and you're jumping on board with a new membership, then you'll have your full 12 months once golf resumes. They've been fantastic in honouring their memberships in the current crisis, so they deserve a big pat on the back, but there's certainly no reason not to jump on board with Future Golf at this point in time and save yourself a bit of cash, the 19th D promo code, that 10% off any new membership. So if you're looking for a place to play without the jacket and tie, Look no further than Future Golf. Head to www.futuregolf.com.au forward slash join. And don't forget to use the 19th T promo code for an extra 10% off. Future Golf, play your way. Welcome back to the 19th T podcast. Drew's with you for this one. No KM, but I am joined by someone who's uh, very close to my golfing game at the moment. He's responsible for all the success that I've had in the last couple of months, albeit it's been very limited. Uh, he's been coaching me through a number of uh, flaws in my golf swing, of which there have been many. He is uh, based up at Karama Golf Course in WA. He's played over in America. He's a ripping bloke. I'm very pleased to welcome to the 19th tee, Glenn Paul. GP, thanks for joining us, mate. George, thank you, mate. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll stitch up um, KM another time, I think. But, yes. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep we'll keep the disappointment of his uh, lack of participation um, tonight to uh, to ourselves, but that's okay. Oh, that we will. That we will. Uh, how's things, mate? Keeping well in the current coronavirus situation? Uh, I see you've got the 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 golf net, the makeshift golf net set up at home. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, not that I've really utilised that too much. Uh, I think it's much like every other golfer that we've got these grand plans to to do some practice at home and it, it never eventuates i think um yeah netflix and and the rest of life gets in the way but um but yeah just uh cruising uh, fortunately the golf course has reopened uh from this weekend so it yeah, will be we'll be back in action and and hopefully back on the lesson tee not too uh not too long after that as well i was uh i've sort of developed a bit of a, a makeshift situation here at the uh at the house here in Yokon and um, I sent you a couple of videos, popped one up on Instagram of me having a hit and it wasn't until I rolled my uh, roll of AstroTurf up that I realised how uneven our driveway is. I was hitting off a wildly, wildly uneven piece of pavement, upslopes, just chunking shots and here's me thinking that I'm actually not going too bad and 
going to roll the uh, AstroTurf <laughs> up and it was just an absolute shit show on the drive on the driveway. So helpful hint for anyone uh, that wants to, to build a, a make makeshift uh, net at home. Make sure you've got level ground. <laughs> make sure you've got level ground, otherwise you'll look like a complete idiot. But um, you look like yeah, you've got the definitely. good Definitely, but mind you, I. Yeah, but I guess, you know, the, practicing those, those uneven lies, it's a, a lot more what you'll get out on the golf course. So probably not a, not a bad thing, but I must say you, you did have me concerned uh, with the first video that came through and, and launching golf balls straight into the carport. Uh, <laughs> once I actually heard that it was a wiffle ball, I, yeah. uh, the nerves calmed down a little bit, but uh, no, you, you had me there for a second. I really should have probably put that information up front because I had a few people be like, are you not worried about your car? Like, are you that confident that you're just going to, you know, hit the wall and it's going to come back to you? Like, no, they were, they were plastic wiffle balls. But um, yeah, it's, um, it's been good. It's, it's been actually quite good getting out and trying to, to um, just get the movement anyway and, um, and, and keep swinging the club. But this isn't about my, uh, my golfing at home and, and my uh, things that we need to work on. It's about you. Glenn, uh, take us right back to the very beginning, mate. What's your connection to the game of golf? Yeah, so I, I guess you know, I've, I've had a club in my hand really from, from as soon as I could walk. I've got photos of yeah, Dad in the backyard with me with a club in my hand. And, um, yeah, I, I've played every other sport under the sun growing up, but I think you know, once I, I kind of fell in love with golf and, and got bitten by the bug, as, as everybody does, uh, it kind of went from there. So um, the the Cannon Challenge, which uh, is obviously extinct, like most events on the Aussie Tour these days, uh, was the first tour event that I I went out to and and watched. And uh, so I grew up at a, a small little nine hole golf course out the back of um, uh, Milpera in uh, in Sydney. So RAE Golf Club. It was in the Army Barracks. And uh, yeah, to to go from there to out to Terry Hills Country Club, which yeah, it was chalk and cheese, really. I, I was pinching myself walking through the, the gates and uh, yeah, seeing these guys play for what yeah, to a 12-year-old seemed like a heap of money. I, I, yeah, and I think it might have been maybe only 500, 600 grand at the time, but it felt like a couple of million dollars. And um, yeah, just that was pretty much a turning point for me to go, this is what I want to do. I want to yeah, pursue playing as a, as a professional and you know, chasing the dream that I think every every young golfer has. Who was out there? Who was playing on uh, at that event that you kind of went, well, gee, I want to be like, uh, who who do you want to be like? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of old school names now. Like, yeah, I think, yeah, you you Matty E. Cobbs and um, yeah, Dave Diaz and, and those, guys, uh, go, uh, those guys. I think it was Peter Senior actually won it that year mm. uh, and obviously still making a... a pretty good living out there these days as well so uh, I say I've been playing since the dinosaurs are around but uh, I guess that that probably ages Pete a little bit more as well. (laughs) How did you pick the game up mate because um, you know it's a question that we do like to ask all of our guests is is how they kind of picked it up because some of them you know it took years before they were even remotely hitting a ball well others were you know they sort of picked it up very quickly. Uh, I, I was in for the long haul. I think um, I was playing off a 36 handicap for about four, three or four years when I started out. Uh, mind you, I was, I was obviously only a, a kid, but uh, mind you, there's so many eight-year-olds and 12-year-olds that are playing off scratch and plus <laughs> figures at the moment. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, just obviously, yeah, 36 for, for a few years and then, you yeah, know, working with a coach and, and 
yeah, essentially dedicated my my sporting um, pursuits to golf and, and then came down relatively quickly from there. I think it yeah, was sort of down to 18 in 12 months and yeah, over the space of the next year or two got down to single figures. But um, yeah, it, it was it was definitely a long haul. But um, yeah, growing up at a, I guess, a little backyard bush track and, and a family with not a, a lot of money behind us, uh, yeah, you had to kind of make do. So yeah, coaching wasn't wasn't top of the priority list, but getting out playing as much as I could was. You won a junior club champ, as you told me last night. What was that moment like? Because uh, coming from thirty six and winning a junior club champ is pretty handy. That uh, yeah, it took a it took a little bit of time, but it was a, a bit of a Stephen Bradbury effort uh, from from memory. I, I know the only other junior in the club that I think he was playing off scratch or one. He had a get about an 18, 19 shot lead heading into the final round and, and got DQ'd. So I've, I've had the, the come come from behind, uh, take take the title. But, you know, as uh, as they say, it's not, um, you know, we don't paint pictures on the scorecards and we just yeah, managed to get it done. So I'll, I'll take it by default, but, uh, you know. What did he do to get DQ'd? probably well-deserved. Uh, I have a funny feeling from area again, we're, we're testing my memory because this is a long time ago, but uh, I have a funny feeling he played a wrong ball uh, and didn't declare it somewhere along the line. So in the end, it signed for a, an incorrect score and, and copped the DQ. But um, yeah, I, I, I'll take it. <laughs> Any win's a good win. Mate, your name's on the trophy. That's all that counts. Exactly right. And unfortunately, the club uh, the club closed down. Uh, it's going back a few years ago now. So can't even say that my name's on an honour board there. But um, hopefully it's still... Locked away in a in a storage unit collecting dust, but uh, we'll we'll still claim it. We'll have to uh, make some investigations, see if we can um, see if we can pull the honour boy out from somewhere. You um <laughs> you did a traineeship after that. What was behind the decision to to doing um, a traineeship? Because obviously it's been it's actually been on social media for those in in the golfing world for the last sort of couple of weeks. Greg Norman was talking about it. Um, I, I suppose it's it's certainly grown in popularity in the last few years, but what was behind your decision to do a traineeship? Yeah, I think the traineeship for me was was about having a, a backup if playing didn't work out for me. And, uh, you know, obviously you, you hear the horror stories and you see the guys that spend three, four, five years trying to chase that dream of, of being a PGA Tour star and, and then they yeah they don't get as far as they want to and and then they don't have anything behind them so i was i was 20 when i started my traineeship so it was yeah it was more about just having that that pga membership and, and i guess opening up other options for me within the golf industry uh yeah should playing not work out which uh you know as i'm sure we'll we'll discuss uh tonight that yeah it didn't go as as well as i'd hoped so Obviously, now in that, that coaching position, that, that decision's worked out, uh, probably being the best one for me. All right, let's talk about, let's talk about going to the US because, uh, as you mentioned, things didn't, didn't particularly sort of turn out as, as well as you would have liked to. But let's talk about traveling over to the USA and taking it even a step further back. What's the decision when you go, right, this is it, I'm going to America, I'm giving this a red-hot crack. What is, what is that moment like when you're kind of walking down the the gate to travel to the States and you go, this is it. This is uh, this is a decision I've made and I've got to live with it now. Yeah, I, I think, um, so as I mentioned to you, I pulled out of my traineeship 
uh, in my third year actually. So I had had a few sort of personal issues, uh, health issues and stuff that that stopped me from finishing that off. And uh, and I think I I spent that time away from the game. And and I, I've got some connections in Pinehurst who I met, uh, you know, when I was working at Macquarie Links golf course and uh, yeah they've been pushing me for years to come over and and live with them and play in the state so I think it was that yeah getting through all of the the other stuff behind the scenes and going well shit you know what what am I going to do I still want to play uh yeah I don't really want to be selling Mars bars and and folding sweaters as we say and Mm. um, yeah I just ended up booking flights and securing some status on the Tar Heel Tour, which is basically a pay-for-play membership. So I think it cost me about uh, a grand or two US just for my membership to, to essentially guarantee me start. And, yeah, just got on the plane and, and away we went. So it was um, it was scary, I think, because you know, you've got to back yourself. And, and you know, while I hadn't even really performed as well as I would have liked to have, in trainee matches and and a lot of people would have probably said that my game wasn't where it needed to be Uh, I think I had that belief in myself that I could go over there and I had enough to at least get by and then continue to work on my game so it was um, yeah it's not a not a tough decision it's quite an easy decision to make Um, coming up with the, the funds to be able to yeah stay over there long term was was probably the biggest challenge yeah, the, the the financial thing is something that certainly has has um, or the other guests on the pod have have certainly told us about. What's it? I suppose for you, um, you know, when you when you travel over to another country, you, you're not only forking out um, living expenses, you've got food, you've got all these other things that you you probably don't necessarily really account for when you you're kind of sitting at home in Australia. And was there anything that sort of jumped out at you when you kind of got over there before you even started playing golf? As you mentioned, you're on the Tar Heel Tour in um in North Carolina, they're based at the beautiful Pinehurst Resort, which we'll absolutely get to talking about that. But what, was there any sort of things that kind of took you by surprise that you went, oh, gee, that would, <laughs> I'm not really certain about that? Uh, just the day-to-day living costs, which sounds silly because it's, it's something that you should probably factor in. But I think when you're looking at you know, flights and accommodation and entry fees, you, you do forget about the, oh, shit, hang on, I've, I've got to, feed myself and I've yeah I have to get my clothes cleaned and and pay for a mobile phone and I I think that was between the costs that I had there and mind you I didn't have as many of the costs because I was living uh with uh some some contacts of mine so uh but also forgetting about the expenses that I still had here in Australia as well and and so it's like you're going well okay I've got to juggle I've got all these costs and all these expenses for playing in another country factor in uh, factoring in the exchange rate but then also going i've still got you know phone bills and i've still got bits and pieces that i've needed to pay for uh back in australia as well so the the money dried up uh, a lot quicker than i was anticipating that's for sure what year was the uh we on the tar heel tour because i'm just looking at the money leaders who was uh, what year were you over there uh it's a- 2008. So you'd, you'd, make, you'd need to scroll down quite a fair way. Uh, David uh, Robinson played 16 events, earned 106,000. Jason Kokrak was the uh, leading money money uh, was the money leader in 2010 with 115. I mean, like the point that I'm trying to make is that the money that you're earning isn't significant, and I suppose 
that presents you another another challenge of of not only just trying to to live but also being able to enter into these golf tournaments and that's certainly something that seems to be a recurring theme on when we speak to um you know golfers who are trying to make their way these days is that it's not all earning million dollar checks and being able to stay in luxury five-star hotels it's certainly you know almost the complete opposite that you you're slaving away and you're really grinding hard to earn quite minimal money while also you know you've got you've got money going out for entry fees and and life itself so um i I have no doubt that it would have been uh there would have been times where it was certainly tough but um no doubt you played some good golf over there as well um based at, at pinehurst so let's Tell us about Pinehurst. Make us all jealous, mate. Here it is. Here's your chance. Um, it is <laughs> possibly the best golf resort in the world um, without giving you know credit to who else am I probably forgetting? You know, maybe Thandon uh, and a few others, but uh, Pinehurst, I reckon, probably takes a cake. Yeah, I, I, I still call it the Disneyland for, it's Disneyland for golfers. Um, you know, I, when I was there, there were eight golf courses. Uh, they've now added a ninth course in the last few years. Um, and I believe, talking to a few guys over there the last week or so, uh, there's talk that they're going to be adding a tenth course uh, to the, the Pinehurst uh, resort as well. Um, I know it's still in discussions. So I think they're looking at taking over a, another facility in the in the area. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it was it was really really neat. And the the people that I was uh, living with, Karen and Mike, they were so within Pinehurst. They've also got uh, a private club within the members club. Uh, so that gave them access to uh, course number seven as well and now with number nine number nine's a members course so i I pretty much had free reign of of number seven uh, and number eight the the resort course for resort guests and uh yeah if i was up at the main club yeah you're up there on on maniac hill and and grinding away and um yeah i played pinehurst number two once uh, so i had the opportunity to play number two once uh but yeah obviously the, the other courses almost unrestricted access to which was was really really cool for game development uh yeah just each each course you had to hit different golf shots and it really uh, i think it made you a more uh, well-rounded player uh, both off the tee but and then you know shot shaping but especially short game because those uh, those greens are all little upside uh, upside down bowls especially number two before it was uh redesigned but uh yeah it it's heaven. I, I'm I'm in love with the place. Uh, I got back there about four years ago, and uh, every time I've I've been back, and every time I look at pictures, it's just yeah. I if I if I could get back there tomorrow, I'd, I'd be there in a heartbeat. What was number two like? Tell us tell us everything that you can remember about it. Oh, uh, it was it was tough. It was magical, but it was tough. Um, the it was about the well the tenth hole. Um, yeah, I think Vijay Singh and Tiger Woods are the only two players that have reached the 10th green in two and um, playing it and I've absolutely piped driver off the tee and thought that I've got it down there and I've hit three wood I think I've still hit like three wood nine iron uh, into the green so it just gave me this appreciation for how good uh, obviously Tiger and Vijay to hit that green in too but um yeah there's not even the course itself i mean the, the course is special and, and i grew up uh, idolizing Payne stewart so for me 
yeah, playing number two and just being at the facility yeah, meant a, so much more of a deal than just the fact that it was Pinehurst. Um, you know, to, to be right there where he's, you know, he's hold the putt for, you know, to win the, the Open. And, but just the, it's all the one percenters around the, around the course. Uh, I think I was ta- um, made a comment on Twitter the other night. Um, one of the members from there is pretty active on, on Twitter and we got talking about um, one of the ground staff picking up pine cones in the trees. Now, the, the place is full of pine trees. And the, and I, I remember talking to her. So yeah, what are you doing? So I'm picking up the pine cones. And I said, well, doesn't that defeat the purpose? Because by the time you pick them up, you'll uh, you'll turn around and they're going to be all over the ground again. But it's just those just those little things like that that they do that just makes that the, the course and the whole facility uh, yeah just that extra special. What about the the other courses that are there? You obviously mentioned there's nine there now, but what about the other ones? Was there any that sort of really stood out to you that thought, obviously everyone wants to go and play number two, but that's that's not not possible for everyone. What about the other ones? Was there anything that you th- that one of them that you thought, well, gee, this is a uh, this is a serious golf course? Yeah, I mean number four is pretty special, and again that that's been redesigned and, and um, redeveloped uh, over the last couple of years. I think it's a core Crenshaw design now off the top of my head. Uh, so, but number four was, was a pretty special course. Um, number seven being the members club uh, is probably one of the tougher golf courses that I've played. A lot of, lot of elevation changes and, and blind tee shots. Uh, but then number eight, just for the resort course as well. It's, uh, I mean, it's your typical resort style golf course, but same thing. Like there's just golf shots that you had to commit 100% to hitting, otherwise you get punished. Um, not as bad as a as a Tundalup resort, um, punished for some wayward shots, but uh, but definitely, yeah, poor poor decisions and poor shots still got uh, got punished pretty hard. You talk about playing number two just the once. Are you able to enjoy it when you're there? Because you, I asked this question of Paul Gow not too long ago, um, sort of around enjoying playing golf when you still want to play well, and if it was if it was possible and and he sort of struggled to answer the question, but are you able to enjoy a course like Pinehurst number two when you're standing there? Yes, you still want to play well, but you're, you're playing one of the best courses in the world. Can, do you have that mentality as a professional golfer to be able to switch off and just enjoy the course for what it is? Uh, yeah, I can see how Gowie gets stuck on that. Um, I, yes, but I, like I said, I think you know, the place holds so much value to me, uh, you know, through Payne Stewart and, and his, his open win. So I, I think, yeah, anytime you peg it up on any golf course as a pro, you still want to play well and, and shoot a number. Uh, I, I think just the satisfaction of being able to say that you've shot, you know, 65 around Pebble Beach or, or Pinehurst number two or wherever it might be. But um, I think to an extent you can still switch off and, and just enjoy the fact that you're playing on yeah on one of the best golf courses in the world. One of the highlights that you mentioned to me last night was your uh, pre-queue event for the US Open at, at the Duke University Golf Club. For those who don't know, Duke University, very, very big university in the States, most probably known for their basketball team, have won a lot of national championships. Uh, Duke University's golf club designed by... Robert Trent Jones, uh, 
absolutely stunning in, in the photos. What was it like playing, I suppose, one at Duke Uni, but two in a uh, US Open pre-queue? Because uh, I imagine that that would have been something like you've probably not really experienced before. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the course was the course was amazing, and, and the whole facilities there were were incredible. But um, so, US Open pre Q was my first event um, from landing in the states. So I think I had about a week of, of prep, uh, and then straight into in a pre Q. And uh, like I, I've been nervous before, but I, I yeah, standing on a tee of a tournament, but. Even without any prize money, just knowing that it was that next stage or that first stage to advance to to final qualifying for US Open, uh, mate, I was absolutely shitting myself standing on the first tee. Um, yeah, I, I think so. I was off the first. I was one of the last groups off the first tee, and and from memory, it's a it's a downhill dog leg left, but you've just got gumbies long if you if you overshoot the fairway, and I. Any time you'd probably be standing there thinking, just don't drive it too far and, and make sure you got the right club. My hands and my knees were shaking, and and I was just thinking, don't top the ball. <laughs> so it was um, it was cool, and, and yeah, managed to get a decent drive away, and uh, yeah, I think I opened with a couple of quick pars, and and then it kind of all went downhill from there. Uh, I blame my caddy for for giving me the wrong club, but. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it was it was an experience, and uh, any time I can shift the blame onto somebody else, uh, I will certainly take it. <laughs> Why not? How do you look? Because after that, um, or sort of after your time in the states, you did move back to Australia. How do you look back on your time in America? What were the highlights? What were the lowlights? What did you learn? Yeah, I, I think highlights were just yeah, just the the experience of. Play, living and playing in another country and, and really, I guess, appreciating just how good other players are. Uh, and I think, you know, you, you always, you've got to back yourself at the end of the day, I think, as a player and, uh, and trust your ability. But then when you see guys just doing things that no human really should be able to do, uh, I think kind of puts your own skills and your own game into perspective a little bit. Um, but yeah, I think just the yeah, just the travelling and the experiencing um, so many great quality golf courses, you know, through North Carolina. Um, I didn't mention to you at the time, but I, I did uh, audition for the big break while I was over there as well. Um, <laughs> didn't get a didn't get a run, obviously, but uh, but yeah, that that was another neat experience. Uh, and I think you know, low lights, um, just the financial struggle. Uh, and, and essentially kind of living week to week. And and if you didn't really make any money, like we had some side side bet games and you had some money matches with a few of the other pros at Pinehurst, but same sort of thing. If you if you played okay, you, you had some money to keep going for the week and um, you know, probably afford the next tournament. Um, otherwise, you're just watching the, the credit card bill uh, rack up and... And you kind of, I think the the more the more the the, the balance of the credit card increased, I think the, the stress levels increased with it in trying to make money, uh, which doesn't really go well with playing good quality golf. So, uh, you know, I, I think for any any young player or any any guy that's been out there and, and had a crack, they all know, and and I think we'd all say the same thing that you know the financial having the finances behind you or at least trying to back yourself and, and knowing that you're kind of playing tournament to tournament and paycheck to paycheck. It's uh, the grind wears on you 
pretty quickly. Um, and then, yeah, I think, you know, the, the biggest thing I, I, the biggest thing I learned was that there was just so much more for me to develop as a player. And yeah, I always rated my short game, but got over there and my short game was shit house. Um, so spent a fair bit of time on that. And I, I still probably rate my short game now, but I think if I had my short game that I do now when I was over there, it'd I think in hindsight, um, everything looks looks great. But, um, you know, yeah, definitely just realising there was probably more to my game that I could work on um, to develop as a player, as not so much as trying to develop swing mechanics, but just learning to, to play different shots and, yeah, from different situations. Another one I didn't ask you about, Tobacco Road. Did you get to play that? I didn't, no. It was on my list uh, of golf courses to play. Uh, I've seen plenty of photos. It looks spectacular. It uh, it, it's, it's on the list. It's definitely on the list for when I get back there. Yeah, yeah. you and me both, mate. You and me both. Um, you then came back to Australia and moved to Perth, and that's where you completed your traineeship, I suppose. That was something important to you that you wanted to have that under your belt um, when you moved over, over here to Perth. Yeah, so, uh, and again, you know, I think having the having the PGA membership behind you, regardless of where you are in the world. Uh, yeah, the Australian PGA and, and our members are held in in high regard globally, which you know, which is a good thing to to have behind you. Uh, but you know, coming from Sydney and, and across to Perth, it's a yeah, it's a, a small town um, in the whole scheme of things, and and a close tight knit community of guys. So uh, yeah, having my PGA membership especially being in WA just allowed me the opportunity to, I guess, come back in the industry and, and be able to coach and play and, and be involved in the industry with, with that membership behind me, as opposed to trying to do you know, go rogue, like, uh, like some guys have done, um, you know, especially over East in the past. Now six hole in ones. That's incredible. Mm. That's more than most people are ever going to get in their lifetime. I've yet to hit one. I mean, albeit I've only been playing, for about 18 months, but six. How on earth do you hit six hole-in-ones? I suppose if you're playing every day, you're probably, uh, you've, your odds are going up nicely. But what was it like when the first one went in, let alone the other five? Yeah, it's, um, they're, they're very well spaced out. I mean, I've been, I've been playing professionally for 15 years and, and I've had a couple as, as an amateur. So they've been, been very strung out. I think the first one, uh, I was there used to be at the I think it was the Novotel uh, in Coffs Harbour. There was a little nine-hole golf course attached to that. So um, I think it was about the, the eight-hole short little downhill par three, sand wedge off the tee, and and hold out. I, there was a group that let me play through. So yeah, that that was pretty cool. But it, yeah, it was yeah it was a bit of a nothing shot. Yeah, you're playing a an 80-meter pitch shot really. But um, again, it it was one shot and it went in. So that was great. Um, I, yeah, I think it's all luck. I, I always say that, you know, my, my ball, just, yeah, the, the greenkeeper just happened to, to cut the hole when my ball decided to finish for the day and, and that happened to be at the bottom of the cup. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I've had some good ones. Uh, I think my, my last one was at Joondalup on, um, on June, uh, June 7. Um, I think the standout hole in one for me that that, I, that really comes to mind was at the Spalding Park Open. Um, that's probably about three years ago now, and the it's the eleventh 
uh, no, the 12th hole, 160-odd um, metre par three. And I've half-shanked this thing. I, I Honestly, I was looking to the right. I didn't expect to see it going forward, and, and it was probably only travelling about 20 foot in the air. But um, yeah, saw it saw it disappear into the shadows and walk up to the green thinking I'd be playing a little yeah, chip shot from the back edge and couldn't find my golf ball. There's a marshal standing at the back of the... Um, at the back of the green and I said, mate, have you seen my ball? No, no, I haven't seen it. So yeah, go down, look in the hole and sure enough, there it, there it is. And he goes, oh, oh did, did you hole out? <laughs> yeah, didn't you see it? He goes, no, I, I was too busy with my binoculars looking at birds in the tree. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it had a witness, but uh, and obviously the, my playing partners, but, uh, but yeah, so there's a marshal there and he hasn't even seen the bloody thing go in. <laughs> oh, and you didn't even really get to celebrate it because no one had, because you hadn't seen it go in from the tee box. you only seen it when you get down there. It's disappointing from that, Marshall. Did yeah. You, did you let him know? Uh, I, I was not impressed, but, <laughs> uh, but you know, it was good. They've, they've got scores every few holes, and, and you know, obviously word, word got around that, I, that I'd hold out. But I think I, I, I made the turn at about seven over, so it didn't really, it didn't really do much for my score, and, uh, and I think it still went downhill after that. But, um, you know, it's, it's just that one little little bit of glitter on a on a pretty ugly scorecard yeah it still says one on the card mate that's all that counts that's all that matters yeah that's all yeah um now teaching up at caramar at the moment the the pro up there um look this is where this is how we met uh was through there one of our one of my mates had gone up for a lesson he said glenn's a, a good bloke go up and have a lesson so we went up there um and and we've had uh a couple of lessons since i think i can't even i've lost track but um a few online ones as well which uh uh has been uh, particularly handy through this coronavirus situation but um i imagine that the teaching side of things is something that you really enjoy and, and imparting your knowledge on i suppose any golfer who just wants to get into the game yeah definitely uh, so i mean i'm i'm one of very few i think there's maybe just over a hundred of us now uh, all abilities coaches uh, across australia uh, through the pga so yeah I, i've got a real passion for for working uh yeah as i said with with golfers of all different abilities and uh yeah different demographics golfers living with disabilities uh and, and the like so yeah i i think for for every golfer i really try and draw on on my experience that I've gained as as a player, and and also you know, the the numerous lessons and, and numerous coaches that I've worked with on my own game over the year to I guess you know adapt to everybody's different learning style. Uh, but in saying that, you know, I, I've spent time you know researching you know researching biomechanics and and skill acquisition and different ways of learning and and have developed my I guess my methods and my philosophies and beliefs on the golf swing. And yeah, I think at the end of the day, all of us are trying to teach as golf pros, we're all trying to teach people how to, how to hit that stupid white ball around the golf course. And, and while we've all got our, our own philosophies and, and our own beliefs, uh, yeah, I think the the underlying fundamentals are, are all the same. So yeah, it's uh, it's good fun. I, I love it. I, yeah, I love being able to, make a difference in in somebody's golf game or in in somebody's life it's um yeah it's it's fun now january i think was the first time that i rocked up and and had a lesson uh with you this year i waltzed up onto the tee uh it was early morning we were playing nine holes afterwards as well and 
Um, what, what was the thoughts going through the head when Drew's is standing on the tee? You're going, oh, Jesus, we've got a bit of work to do here or, or was it manageable? No, look, I, I think it was, it was manageable, mate. Um, I, I, <laughs> mate. I still want you to come back for a few more lessons, so I'm not going to give you too much shit. Um, <laughs> but um, no, look, it, it, was, it was definitely manageable. I, I've all, I always say to everybody, I've always seen worse golf swings uh, if you think yours is the worst, I, I've always seen worse. Um, and to highlight that, uh, I had a I had a new golfer show up to a clinic uh, that I was holding, and she set up to the golf ball with the grip and held the club head. Um, so that's oh. that's about the worst that I've seen. Um, so oh. uh, unless you show up to the lesson tee trying to just throw your whole golf club at the golf ball, uh, yeah. No, nothing's unmanageable uh, and I, I think you know it's all about matching up um, you know so it's all cause and effect and, and making sure that you match certain elements up to, to create a, a desired shot pattern or a you know desired outcome yeah I think the I think what I really enjoyed walking away from the, the first lesson obviously you know having having a couple of things to work on was that was that it was just a couple of things to work on not 48 different things that you, you know, you tried to change with the swing or whatever and, and, and also sort of accommodated the fact that, um, you know, I sit behind a desk all day so I'm pretty inflexible through my hips and, and all the rest of it and it wasn't, you know, go away and do, you know, a whole bunch of uh, stretches on your hips and then come back in six months' time when you're a bit more flexible and we'll be able to get it to a point where you can play. So I think having taking that sort of approach and, and individualised approach is, is really important towards you know, giving people advice and, and trying to tweak their swing to get them to a point where they can enjoy enjoy playing. But particularly having the opportunity to walk away with just a couple of points is really, really important for me, particularly as a student, walking away with one or two points to go, well, this is what Glenn wanted me to do. I've got to, you know, for me, I had to try and keep the club head sort of a little bit more outside and, and you know, don't come inside too early. And then ultimately that's going to see me tipping the club head over. So and I walked away with that and I, that's exactly what I knew that I needed to do. So is it important, I suppose, to, to not overload people with too much information in, you know, particularly in early lessons, um, but just in general of teaching, you know, I imagine you don't want to be giving them 48 things to work on. Yeah, definitely. Uh, th- yeah, in my opinion, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think a lot of that comes back to the, the questioning at the start of the lesson and yeah, getting an understanding of, you yeah, in your your case, for instance, that you are behind a desk and you know, you're you're probably in that same boat of people that are stuck you know, in desk jobs and you know you get out and practice, which is great, but other people uh, either may not have the time to go out and practice or are just simply aren't going to uh, devote the time to practice. So you know, the the approach and the stuff that I might give that person is going to be different to, to what I give you as well. So I think identifying at the beginning what their goals are and and also making setting some realistic goals for them, especially if theirs are, are quite unrealistic. Uh, and then from there it comes back to, to matching up and, and taking all the good things that you're doing and just improving, uh, I guess improving the good things, but also matching up the things that you're not quite doing uh, so well because yeah at the end of the day we want you to be able to go uh, you know, straight from the lesson tee like we did out onto the golf course and and be able to at least put it together and and yeah hit some half decent golf shots 
I've, I've fallen guilty uh, you know, in my own teaching, but also in lessons that I've had growing up where you know, the, the pro wants to try and change you know, everything. And then you go out and you spend the next month you know, hitting it like shit. And then it's that, that cycle that you either go, oh, you know, Glenn's a shit coach. I'm not going to go and see him. So you go and see somebody else. And now all of a sudden you, know, you do that four or five times and you're more confused than spending an hour on uh, YouTube. So it's, it's, I think there's a skill. I, but yeah, there's a lot of good young coaches out there now uh, all around the world. But, and I think, you know, with TrackMan and, and, you know, all this other technology, we can, to an extent, we can hide behind the numbers and we can hide behind the data. Yes, we can use that to, to make changes. But I think the, the biggest skill is being able to come back and, and communicate with the golfer on one on their level and, and their level of understanding, but also ensuring that what you communicate, they understand and can take it away. Uh, like you said, you know, with, with two or three things just to, to key points to go off and work on, but you know that even if you don't get a chance to work on it as much as you probably would like to, you should still see some level of positive result in your, in your golf game. And, and you know, if that's hitting hitting a couple more fairways around or, you know, your, your 50 metre slices down or a 20 metre slice. Uh, you know, I think any, any positive is a good positive. Now you've been in WA a little while. Where are your favourite courses over here in Perth? We've got a, a huge array of exceptional public golf courses, particularly, but obviously our private ones are very, very nice as well. Where, where are you going to play if you get the opportunity aside from Karamar, obviously, which is a, which is a great little, Great little track, very demanding, very tight. Um, as I know, I've lost many golf balls up there. But where are you going to play if you uh, if you get the opportunity? Yeah, I, I there's so many untouched golf courses um, over here in WA that I've yeah I've heard of, but but haven't played, especially down in the southwest. Um, I, I think Karen Up's always at the top of the list. It, it's such a great golf course and. Uh, yeah, you talk. We were talking earlier about being able to just switch off and enjoy a course. I, I find I can do that around uh, around Karen Up, uh, Meadow Springs, definitely uh, on my list. Uh, the Cut is up there as well. Uh, uh, the Cut for me holds a pretty special place. Uh, yeah, I played the uh, WA PGA Champs there in 2008. Uh, again, butchered it around, but it was yeah, it was such a good golf course, uh, and probably. Probably Cottesloe as well. I, I I could probably rattle off so many golf courses, but uh, but yeah, I'd say yeah, Karen Up, Meadow Springs, uh, the Cut, Cottesloe, and uh, yeah, Joondalup is on my list of favourite courses to play. Um, but I don't take a scorecard because that place just frustrates the hell out of me. Uh, <laughs> you can hit so many quality golf shots and just get absolutely punished, and you can hit some of the worst golf shots and just and still shoot a score. It, I, it messes with my head um, and messes with my emotions every time I pick it up around there. There are so many amazing golf courses around here. And obviously this is what we speak about most of the time while we have a lesson is, is probably spending more time about courses and, and whatnot that we've played. It's frustrating at the moment for me seeing courses go and disappear. Uh, there's the one out in Jandicott. I can't remember its actual, what its actual name is, but that one, you know, is said to be, um, being taken over by land developers and then uh, over the weekend 
very disappointingly for me, binning up golf course, the, the little nine hole course, Lakewood Shores is, um, is going to be taken over by uh, and turned into a limestone mine. Um, so it's, it's so frustrating to see some of these public golf courses go and, and get taken away from us because they are so fantastic and, and we just need to keep supporting them whenever we can. So I think um, to hear that you've, you know, that on your list of public golf courses, uh, on your list of favourite courses are a number of public courses is really exciting. So we just need to keep supporting the game wherever we can. Yeah, definitely. And we're, we're really, really spoiled in WA. Yeah, the condition of our public golf courses uh, as good, if not better, than some private courses over east. And you know, to, to go and play yeah, at a public facility, uh, you know, Caramar, Collier Park, uh, Wembley, uh, you know, the three that probably spring to mind, uh, and the condition that they're in to only pay you know, 30, 40 bucks for, for green fees is, is an absolute steal because you put the same facility over on the East Coast and, and you know, all of a sudden it's 50, 60, 80 bucks for a green fee. Mm. And you know, I, I think golf over here is definitely a lot more affordable for the public golfer uh, and, and the condition and the quality of the facility that you're getting for that price uh, is is just ridiculous uh and there's so many as well so i think the, the accessibility for anybody that wants to take up the game and and whether it's to go and and hit some balls at, at wembley and you know, the novelty of the pop-up uh, yeah the pop-up balls coming out of there or uh you know whaleback has top tracer and, and those other little things like that that you, know, you, you go out you hit a few balls you catch the bug there's enough places around Perth and, and even sort of heading up north and, and down the southwest that people can go and experience golf and, and get that bug without having a huge financial outlay to do it as well. Do you think we are probably doing enough to encourage people into getting into the game? I suppose you talk about the accessibility and the price of it, and which is all fantastic, but are we doing enough to, to really sort of get that either the next generation or, or people that are my age, you know, 25, 26 that are, you know, that don't really get into golf. Are we doing enough to get these sort of minority groups into playing the game? Because ultimately they're the future of, of golf. It's unfortunately for, for many people and they don't like hearing it. It's not, you know, the old men who make up the majority of, of golf clubs these days. It's, it's that next generation that are really going to be the ones to, to take the, the beacon of golf to the next, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, it, it's funny because I'm, I'm quite mixed on my, my thoughts and, and, I mean, I've got my opinions on, on where the game should go. And, and I think, you know, from a grassroots level, I, I don't think there's enough in place. Uh, yeah, there's this big focus on juniors and, uh, and on getting women into golf, which is great, don't get me wrong. But I think, you know, I, I've sort of, the analogy I, I use, if, you know, if somebody's, on the ground bleeding out you try and stop the bleeding so in golf the bleeding is losing you know it's losing the club members and it's losing the the middle age you know men and women um you know that have family commitments and work commitments how can we stop losing those players first before we worry about trying to introduce new juniors and and more women into into golf and yeah i I think your public access it doesn't necessarily sort of fit in coaching programs, whether that's at, at 
yeah, public courses or, or private courses. But I think yeah, just different iterations of the game, you know, whether it's six holes or 12 holes or yeah, flexible memberships. And you know, obviously you guys have, have got your partnership with, with Future Golf and, and what those guys are doing are, are really, really good for the game. And, uh, and then the guys from Blitz Golf with, yeah, with the Pro Series and, and now into the, the AMI Series as well. There's, there's new ideas and there's fresh ideas coming through. And I, I think you know, as an industry, there's a lot of resistance uh, to change, uh, and whether that's the, you know, from a from a club level, and that stuffiness of, you know, this is how we've always done things. So yeah, and it's worked 30 years ago. So we'll keep doing it. I, I think bringing into to the coronavirus situation, I, I think now facilities and coaches and administrators have had to really sort of think about new ways of doing things. And I, I think yeah, coming out the other side. I think more places will be open to, to doing things differently and I think that will help uh, along this sort of pathway of, of making the game a, a little bit more accessible or, or you know, um, inviting to, to those guys and, and girls that maybe don't play as often or have wanted to play but there's been something in the way. Uh, you know, hopefully some of those barriers can, can come down. Yeah, I think you know ultimately everything that you've spoken about there is... is you know, at the heart of what this podcast is about is trying to break down some of those barriers to, you know, to, to that resistance that there is that currently exists because whether we like it or not, it, it is there and we need to, um, you know, particularly our private golf courses really need to adapt. And, and unfortunately for, for a lot of people, um, you know, price can be a, um, a, something that turns them away for, for what they can play. I mean, you know, if you can play once a week, you know, and you're paying six, $7,000 a year to play at a course, you know, you're not really getting your money's, money's worth. So, you know, those sort of alternative ideas that you were mentioning there are going to become so critical and, and, I'll, and, you know, that's what, you know, we're trying to drive here at the 19th tee and, and obviously we're both singing off the same hymn sheet here and that's um, why we got along so well uh, back in January when we first met. So um, it's good to see that everyone's sort of singing off the same hymn sheet and, and uh, hopefully more courses can take a leaf out of, you know, Karamar's book and, and uh, keep uh, kicking goals and, and growing the game. So, um, mate, this has been a lot of fun having a chat and um, we'll have to get Marshy back on board next time so we can work out what's going wrong with his swing and, and his, uh, although he hasn't been playing too much, so we can't give him too much shit, but um, he's, uh, he's got a little one like you as well. So it's, uh, it's not, it's easy for us folks who don't have kids. We can, I can just get out whenever the hell I want. So, and keep swinging the uh, swinging the golf club. It's been a lot of fun, mate. Thank you very much for joining us on the 9th Tee Podcast. Um, I'm sure I'll see you for another lesson very soon and we'll try and uh, sort out what's going on with which let's just pick a club. We'll pick any club out of the bag next time and we'll just see if we can maybe try and fix a couple of things on it. GP, thanks for joining us, mate. It's been a lot of fun. Drew, thank you, mate. And uh, once we can catch up after the uh, this old restrictions and, and social distancing that we've got, uh, pretty sure you still owe me some of that wine that you won in the uh, prime at Mount Lawley, mate. So I'll look forward to that too. <laughs> hey, I'm still at the golf balls. I'm still at the golf balls, so I'm doing well. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you very much again, mate.